Well, it's my pleasure to be with Phil Dedridge today from Focusrite. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, Thanks for coming. Not a problem. Not a problem. Lovely to, to see you here and remembering you were just down the road in, in what was a converted sort of factory at one point, uh, yeah, just around the corner. It used to be the Martin Audio factory where they built loudspeakers and um, we took it over from them back in the 90s when they relocated to their current facilities and we needed to emerge from our original sort of industrial shed that we set the company up in. Let's ring right back to the start because we always like to ask where it all started really and, and my research tells me that you're the son of a doctor and a, a, an Olympic canoeist, an OBE I think. Yes. So, and but then you ended up mixing for the mixing for Led Zeppelin. Yeah, my, my mother trained as a doctor in the 30s which was fairly unusual. She was uh, quite um, a determined young woman who had been born in uh, Peking or Beijing, as you call it these days, um, daughter of um, Church of England missionaries. And um, so she spent her first 10 years there. And then uh, both her parents died within a year or so of each other. And she was raised by maiden aunts in Oxford. And uh, uh, eventually, uh, well, she wanted to pursue her dream of uh, returning to China to carry on her good works, unfortunately. World War Two got in the way, and then the Chinese Revolution. So she never, she did qualify as a as a doctor and a surgeon, but um, she didn't get back to China. And then the family came along and got in the way of her career. And by the time she'd finished having children, I was the last one. Um, she, uh, she felt it was too late to go back into medicine, but she did other useful things. Like she was a magistrate, amongst other things. Um, I'm not sure how many of our um, listeners would appreciate a magistrate, but Karen, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'm sure she was a very nice one. I'm sure she, she was. Probably let everybody off, um, <laughs> except the really hardened criminals. But um, my father was a schoolmaster. Uh, he was re- he was they were from very different class backgrounds. She was raised, you know, the, the, back in the Edwardian days. You know, Church of England missionaries tended be well sort of blue-blooded stock yeah um, and he was uh the son of a railwayman um uh, from um uh, originally born in yorkshire and lived in derbyshire and nottinghamshire as the job moved his father around his father was a station master um and uh my father was very sort of again independent minded had his own ambitions his first ambition was to uh, get an education because uh, his circumstances um, were would have suggested that he'd have left school at fourteen and 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 got a, a working job and um, he wanted to go to grammar school and uh, university and his uh, headmaster said well um, you know if you want to go to grammar school you'll have to get a um, uh, a bursary to, to, to do it because they charge fees. So he went along to the grammar schools, said, said to that headmaster, you know, how do I get one of these bursaries? And uh, he said, well, uh, one of the ways is to uh, say that you want to become a teacher. So um, he said, well, that sounds like a good outcome. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll sign up to that. So he got his grammar school place on the strength of intending to become a teacher. Um, 
and, not, and university the same story. So um, he went to Nottingham University and uh, he became a physical education teacher originally. He was a canoeist from uh, his student days. And in and the 19... which Olympics did he...? 1936, he, he was the... he created the um, British canoe team um, uh, that went to Berlin from a bunch of enthusiasts, basically. It wasn't, it wasn't really a sport in this country. And this time he, we did gold. He was sort of founder of the sport. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Um, you must have watched that recently, thinking back. Um, absolutely. I went to I went to the uh, uh, the Olympic canoeing this year, and um, I'd never been to the Olympics before, but I, I, I was really thinking a lot about my father, who's, who's passed away some 10 years ago. But... Um, uh, it occurred to me as I was watching him and thinking about him, and he was really entrepreneurial, but not for, for in a business sense, but in creating the British Canoe Union and, and, and the, the racing team and working with the British Olympic Committee in 1948 to set up the regatta for the canoeing and rowing. Um, uh, he had that sort of entrepreneurial spirit, but not for business purposes. Um, for the greater good, if you like, and um, so. Uh, where did the music come from? I, I, Were they musicians well, themselves? I went. I ended up going to the school where he taught. Um, by which time he had retired from physical education, still ran the canoeing, but was teaching science. And he ended up teaching me chemistry for a year before I flunked out of school at the age of sixteen. Um, and you might imagine that um, in the sixties. There's plenty of potential for there to be a, a big generation gap. You know, I was the youngest of, of, of four, so he was in his forties, and I was a young Turk, and um, we didn't really get along that well. Uh, we didn't get along terribly, but we just didn't didn't have much to do with each other. Um, and uh, I wasn't very academic, although I was at a very academic school, and I was always looking around for something more interesting, and. Um, to cut a long story short, I left school and uh, and left home when I was seventeen and uh, gravitated towards London. Um, I'd always had a, a a passion for music from when I first heard rock and roll in the fifties, and I was always trying to find uh, pop music on on the BBC, which was fairly difficult. Uh, and then uh, all we had was. Radio Luxembourg Caroline. in the evenings yeah. until the pirate ships yeah. came along, and then Radio Caroline and Radio London were a godsend, absolutely brilliant, and exposed me to uh, not just to current pop music, but also particularly John Peel's Perfume Garden program exposed me to uh, West Coast mm. uh, music, and I suppose nineteen sixty. 566 67 and uh, so it was all part of my youth culture and uh, uh, I gravitated to London uh, first worked in a an electronics company when I first left school that was developing industrial microfilm equipment and I worked there for a year and a half before dropping out completely and getting involved with the, the sort of counterculture in London. So you nearly, you nearly ended up working with James Bond, but instead you ended up working with Led Zeppelin. Well, it wasn't that kind of microfilm, <laughs> oh, it was right. industrial microfilm. Oh, right, okay. It was uh, um, machinery for taking 
fabric, you know, 35 mil microfilm of, of um, blueprints and things. But what that actually gave me, and I didn't realize what I was acquiring at the time, was a, a, a little business education. Um, because working as the assistant to the assistant to the production manager, uh, I was just running around. I was a gopher, basically, yeah. doing whatever needed to be done. Yeah. And uh, in, you know, that included going to Heathrow quite regularly um, to uh, either collect things from air freight companies or deliver things to air freight companies. I got a, an understanding of, of you know, how, to, how to ship things, export, which came into... Uh, became very handy later on okay, um, yeah. and uh, and then um, I learned about the structure of the company which was you know about 150 people or something it had an R&D department purchasing accounts sales all those things um, which I wasn't interested in I was interested in in, in, in the counterculture and uh, music so I left all that behind me and worked for a magazine called International Times, um, which uh, was like Village Voice in in New York. Yeah. It was the magazine. It was the newspaper of, of, of the, the underground. The underground. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, initially, for one day, I was. I, 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 somebody said, "You can sell IT on the street, and they keep half the money." So I thought, "Well, that's one way to make a living." I tried it for a day and gave up. I yeah. thought, "That's no good." But I had a car, and they needed somebody to deliver it around London, you know, to all the head shops and places that would sell it. And uh, coincident with that was a poster company called Osiris Visions, which was run by Joe Boyd, who managed Fairport Convention and oh, others. Yeah. And uh, I ended up becoming Fairport Convention's first roadie by virtue of the fact that when they needed a van, I said, "Well, I'll get one by Saturday." And, yeah. Uh, uh, and you so had wheels. I had wheels. I, you know, my, my only qualification is a driving license and the ability to to make sure I had something that I was mobile. So, um, so I became their their first roadie and and then worked subsequently with other related bands like Fairport, uh, like um, the Incredible String Band, mm. Pete Brown's uh, Battered Ornaments, uh, Soft Machine, and by nineteen seventy, I had three transit vans and uh, because that was part of my my offering I was a, a, an independent contractor if you like with a trucking company with, with, with my own van so Soft Machine had two transit vans and me and uh, I hired another roadie to drive the, the other van and uh, but I got bored with music and wanted something else and um, the PA company that everybody used then uh, was called WEM. Yeah, uh, Watkins, Watkins Electric Music. And everybody had WEM PAs. And uh, I was at the WEM factory one day um, getting something fixed or whatever and said to Charlie Watkins, the owner, uh, you know, I'm a bit bored with Soft Machine now. I've been with them for about a year. Do you know of any other gigs going? And, and he said, well, Led Zeppelin looking for somebody. And he made a phone call. Uh, got me an interview and you know I, I got the gig and did i read that you were called the wem man for led zeppelin the, for a bit then well that's what robert plant um christened the me the wem expert the wem expert <laughs> <laughs> yeah um 
so that's interesting. It, it, I, I was 21 years old and I thought he was about 25, but I've only learned recently that he's, he's the same age as me. Yeah. So, so when I was 21 and felt like a kid, he was 21, but looked like a grown-up to me. He certainly had tons of charisma and, and self-confidence, and I probably exuded more confidence than I had, but... Uh, so those were before the days of line arrays and all that, and you were you were doing some yeah. pretty pretty big gigs with some pretty pretty basic equipment without sounding rude, weren't you? Well, pretty... in Europe we were using we were playing to small audiences, uh, typically sort of two thousand people in a cinema or a town hall, and just or stacking it all up, stacking up the wham, yeah, and the wham wall of sound, yeah, um, <laughs> thousand watts, yeah, and um, uh, so. Um, that's what we, what we used around Europe. And then when we went to the States, they said, is the PA going to be big enough for, for the States? I said, well, it depends where we're playing. And and there's, they weren't really sharing a lot of information. But we shipped the WEM PA out there with all the back line anyway. Um, but when we got to the first gig, which was Vancouver, um, there was a, a big system there and, and, and as it turned out all the deal then was that the promoters would provide a pa uh, for the arena gigs so we played a, a hockey arena in vancouver with a, a great big uh, american style system with huge bass bins um that was a company called kelly dion which mm. i don't suppose exists now um i've never seen anything like it and it was loud and the bass was phenomenal i was really turned on by it I used the WEM mixers because nobody. The, the one thing that was missing from all the systems was any proper kind of mixer, and 10 channels of WEM was superior to anything that anybody else had. So uh, we headed south from Vancouver and went to uh, uh, Portland and Seattle and then headed across to Denver and Salt Lake and Salt Lake City and ended up going all around the country. Um, uh, it was 26 shows in about 30 days. It nearly killed me. Um, it was absolutely, because we were you know, driving everywhere. Yeah. So arrive at the gig, unload, set up, do the gig. Uh, no sound checks. Um, reload it, <laughs> set off to the next one. No total recall call desk. <laughs> set off to the next, 10 microphones. You know, it's yeah. like, it wasn't complicated. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first time, uh, the first show that I, I, I actually joined the crew mid-tour. There were only two road crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, uh, the guy who was supposed to be looking after Jimmy Page's guitars was also looking after the mixer. And it, they said, well, can we have somebody else? You know, and then there was no glory attached to being the PA guy. And we weren't called sound engineers. You know, uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was just another another roadie who had something to do during the show um and uh so yeah looking after 10 channels i mean the the biggest challenge was was squeezing um the most out of of, of the system for, for robert plant's voice the because uh, he has a hell of a range doesn't he oh phenomenal is that i mean the power of, of his voice was such that um he would basically overload the input stage of the web mixer so and you I, had no compression in those. No days. compression, no. So I, I was actually controlling it. You were riding the, the fader. I was, I was riding the, the input game. trim. I was riding the input trim. So I had everything else open, 
and, and literally just cracking the input open to let his voice through uh, and doing it dynamically. Um, so how was the journey then? Because obviously they, they're, they're, fan, they're fantastic stories uh, for, for these kind of things. But they, how, did, how did that journey then go from uh, then into Soundcraft and then here to in, in, into Focusrite? What was, where, where, did, where did it go? Was it all that, was, it sounds like the journey so far has kind of built a, a, a combination of all the things you need to start a company like you had and you have now, which was well, like the business side, yeah. the music side, the contact side, it's all leading to something really, isn't it? Yeah, it wasn't obvious at the time, but um, I left um, Zeppelin after the American tour. I just said, right, you know, if that's it. If that's, if that's world-class touring, I think there's <laughs> got to be a better way of making a living. And I wanted to get involved in PA. I mean, I had my eyes open to the potential in, in America. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to build PAs over here, and the only way I could figure I could do that it was with an established company. So I um, ended up working with Highwalk for a year. Mm. Um, and I can't tell you why I didn't end up working for WEM because I honestly don't know. And logically, I should have gone back to WEM mm. and, and, and joined them. But um, it was probably just by virtue of a conversation with the owner of Highwalk, um, who was enthusiastic about getting into PA, that I worked for him. And as a byproduct of that year which was really my job there was what you'd call artist relations today i was driving around with a van full of high watt um to people's rehearsals and and they were trying stuff out they're all typically you know well well known names either at the time or subsequently mm. um uh, and i failed to sell a pa to elton john you know, he bought all women's system but um the byproduct of, of lucky of miss that there then <laughs> The activity of, of, of that activity uh, was that I, I was doing the sound every Sunday at the Roundhouse uh, as a sort of charity thing. And uh, I think I used to get 15 quid expenses or something. We're here about 73 and 74 now, aren't we? Was no, 1970. 19, still, still 1970. All oh, right. Um, so the, the American tour with Zeppelin was 1970, and it was 70, 71. Um, no, it must have been 70, because I started RSD in 71. So um, uh, I was uh, mixing sort of eight bands a, a night, you know, from, on a Sunday from three o'clock till 10 o'clock. Um, and that was good training. Yeah. Um, no Between sound checks toes. again. Yeah, you know, just reset the mics and carry on, you know. I probably um, the skin as thick as a, a, an elephant for all the abuse you probably got as the sound no, guy. Or were they, were they quite, no, no, quite... Everyone was, yeah, it was, it was very it was good vibes, really. I mean, those implosion gigs were, were great. All the bands used to play for expenses because it, it, it was, it was um, just the gig to do in London. And, and uh, we had everybody do it, you know, uh, Rolling Stones, everybody did implosion gigs. Mm -hmm. Pink Floyd were fantastic. I didn't get to do the sound for that because they had their own huge whim system, quadraphonic yeah. Um, yeah. system that they put all around the, the balcony of the roundhouse. So everyone, you know, the first time I've heard a quadraphonic, probably the last time I heard a quadraphonic yeah. PA as well. Um, but um, yeah, I experimented with stereo using two mono mixers and splitting the mics uh, <laughs> and, and, and getting stereo that way. Um, but um, did that for about a year uh, and then dabbled a bit in uh, uh, with a, a, a 
very avant-garde jazz group as, as a, a manager, which was more like being a tour manager, really. It was a bit insane. And then I, I um, started working with a, a, another roadie who f fancied himself as a loudspeaker designer. And uh, we started a company called RSD, which stood for Rotary Speaker Developments. We were going to build the biggest ha uh, biggest Leslie uh, you'd ever seen. Well, that didn't work, but we went... They're heavy enough as it is. Uh, we went into PA. Yeah, this was kind of... Because PAs weren't very big in those days, the idea, you know, all the sound was coming off the stage. And the idea was to have a bit, you know, a bigger, louder Leslie. But, but that <laughs> idea didn't go very far, but that did lead to establishing the company. Uh, and then we, we started building PAs for people, um, customers included, notably Cockney Rebel, um, uh, Gentle Giant, and that's about as far as my memory stretches. I think we built about a dozen systems, and roughly one a month for about a year. Um, uh, we lacked a mixer, however, and um, uh, we were introduced to a guy called Graham Blythe, who... Um, had worked with a rival PA company called Kelsey and Morris. Worked for Bill Kelsey uh, as a as a sort of uh, junior engineer. He left Bristol University with a degree in electrical engineering and worked with Bill at Compton Organs. That's where he got his grounding in electronics. Um, and then they had a sort of technical falling out, and Graham went off in a uh, in a. Uh, uh, trance as you know, tranced out of the room. You know, I'll show you how to build a mixer. You know, and he built he built a better mixer, and and then had to do something with it. And he was introduced to us by an amplifier company we all worked with, HH Electronics, mm -hmm. um, uh, who looked at this mixer and didn't know what to do with it. But they they said, "Well, go and see these boys in Chesson. They might, you know, you probably find a home there, sort of thing." And we promptly made him a third partner in the business and uh, carried on. Well, the whole enterprise lasted about a year and a half before Graham and I fell out with uh, Paul Dobson, our original partner. Uh, so we separated off the mixer side of things, and that was the, the birth of Soundcraft. Which was a huge success. I remember at one point it was ubiquitous with things like the 200s and the 400s. They were everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, the original product was called the 16 into 2, which we mm. retrospectively called the Series 1. Yeah. Um, when we brought the Series 2 out. Um, <laughs> and um, that was a 16-channel mixer built onto a single uh, front panel rather than a modular construction, which our previous mm. mixers had been. Um, and um, the 16 into 2 built into a flight case aluminium flight case was massively successful we mm. could never build enough of them um, and uh, the, the the product range evolved from that into well actually there's a series one four bus mixer for mm. recording mm. uh, the TAC 3324 four track is that the right model number I think it is four track mixer a uh, four track recorder right? yeah yeah um, wooden ends on it yeah uh, had, had been introduced and there was no sort of mixer to go with it and we were encouraged to build one by the manager of the store down the road in Tottenham Court Road called REW and mm. um, thanks to his uh, 
uh, his encouragement we got into the recording side of things as well as live. And so for the next you know, 15 years or so, um, we were building live mixes and recording mixes, eventually even little broadcast desks. Mm. Um, we started our own American distribution company in 1981. Mm. Um, and this that was eventually taken over by JBL in um, 1985, 1986. Um, what do you think made Sandcraft so successful? I don't know, you probably think, it, was it? Well, I'd, I'd say, number one, you know, right place, right time, yeah. then right product. Yeah. Because um, they know, were built like tanks, weren't they? Yeah, well, we built them as well as we could, but we're also always very um, value conscious. Um, there were more expensive offerings, particularly on the live side with Midas, for example, mm. who who would charge twice as much as we would for a, um, for a given size of console. So mm. it would be like a 40-input live console. You know, ours might be 10,000, theirs would be 20,000. Yeah. I'm, I'm just reaching for figures in mm. what you might call old money when you know, things were relatively um, more expensive. And, yeah. uh, and, the, and the pound was worth more as well. <laughs> yeah, $2 um, to the pound. But uh, yeah. no, it's an irony that, you know, our original 16-channel stereo mixer for, uh, was 995 pounds, which is more than one would cost you today, probably. Oh, yeah. Uh, bought a Spirit or a Mackie or... Yeah, yeah, uh, by a mile, yeah. almost, yeah. So, um, so in value terms, things are so much cheaper than they, they were. Because yours were boards in chat. Yours are actually individual, individual channels. Individual boards. Inter- per, on each, per, per strip. Yeah. But, you know, components were very expensive then. Yeah. You know, volumes were low. So, and, you know, things were handmade. So, inevitably, they were expensive. It wasn't that we were making extortionate profits. Which probably talking about handmade, which probably leads us quite nicely into the forte, the original forte boards that you built. How did that? So Soundcraft, I think, was eighty eight. Was it you sort of? We sold Soundcraft in nineteen eighty eight to Harman. Um, that sort of was a natural progression from them taking over our US distribution. They got a taste for what we were doing, mm. and Soundcraft fitted nicely alongside uh, JBL, mm. which, funnily enough, was always one of my sort of ambitions when we started Soundcraft that we would end up being for mixers what JBL were for speakers. I was a big admirer of JBL back in the seventies. And um who in their heyday were pushing out one speaker a second. Really? Yes. Yeah, statistic I once learnt from some guy at Harmon. Amazing. Yeah, they were punching out one speaker a second in that American factory. Yeah. Just popping them out. I think at the same time they were also Harmon was also uh, distributing Tascam, so it was probably a good fit the mixers and the and the recorders and everything. No, I don't. Are they finished with Tascam by then? Fostex? I didn't recall them ever being yeah, involved with Tascam. Yeah, I think perhaps I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. I know they had a period with Fostex, didn't they? They were Fostex distribution in, in the country. UK. Yeah, uh, that was uh, a byproduct of um, Harmon acquiring Bandive. Yeah. Which um, owned turnkey wholesa- the yeah. turnkey shop yeah. and and the wholesale business. Yeah, mm-hmm. they never. It was, it was a, as I say, a byproduct. Right. Yeah. So then you moved. Then Focusrite was born. Well, Focusrite was started by Rupert Nee yeah. in about nineteen eighty five. Right. I've never been able to quite put a date to it, but um, uh, around nineteen eighty five, Rupert came out of retirement. He he'd sold 
the Neve company to, um, I think it was Energy Services was the company that bought it and it was subsequently sold to Siemens. Um, so Rupert had been under a, a consultancy uh, contract which basically kept him on ice for about five years. And then uh, when that came to an end, um, he started to dabble again. And um, uh, George Martin um, had asked him to, if he would like to build some extenders to the Air, um, Air Studios consoles. And um, that was, as far as I can gather, the first project for this new company, uh, Focusrite Limited. Incidentally, the, the name Focusrite was an off-the-shelf company name. Uh, it wasn't, no, nobody thought it up. It wasn't company. a revelation in the night with a, with, a, with a choir of angels. It was a no. pound company off the shelf. Yeah. And uh, he didn't change the name, whereas uh, with Soundcraft, we also, I mean, it's for the benefit of your listeners, um, in, in, in the UK, the easiest way to start a company is to buy what, a shell company, an off-the-shelf yeah shell company for a hundred quid and um uh, and then change the name to whatever you like and you can be in business the next day mm. um so uh uh so rupert started focus right uh, george martin um got him to build the extenders for the S uh, studios consoles um which were in uh it was still in the oxford street days before they went to lindhurst um, and there was one for in Montserrat as well. I think there were two, two at uh, Oxford Street and one at, in Montserrat. Yeah, George's. Yeah, Caribbean Studio. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's in a police video somewhere. The police recorded an album uh-huh. there. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, ought to look at that video. I think um, Sting's running across the mixing desk at one point in one of the videos. And did, yeah, every little thing she does is magic. I think he runs across the desk at one point, which probably wasn't the most impressive thing <laughs> for, for George to see. Uh, well, yeah, Oasis got into trouble for standing on the console at Lindhurst Hall. Uh, yeah. So, uh, there's also precedent. Um, so, uh, then they got into building outboard. Um, they, they, they took the, the mic pre um an eq module the isa 110 um which was developed for the uh for the sidecars for the lindhurst consoles for the airs consoles rather um and started racking them up and selling them um to studios here and uh, in america and elsewhere um and then somebody said to to rupert would you build me a full-size console and of course he said yes and uh, then various other people he had a sales guy by this time who was out soliciting for business and ended up getting half a dozen orders for a console that didn't exist um, and taking deposits to fund the development and build of these consoles unfortunately nobody knew how much they would cost to develop or how much they cost to build and by the time they'd just about completed the first two, uh, they, the company was in, seriously in debt and they were unable to continue and the company went into liquidation. And this was the Forte board? This was the Forte that went to uh, Master Rock in London and Electric Lady Studios in New York. 
Um, and that was early 1989. I left Soundcraft in, at the end of 88. Uh, so I was kind of footloose and fancy free with money in the bank. And somebody said, why don't you buy Focusrite? And so tempted by the prospect of something to do, I, I went to see the company just before it went into liquidation. And it was a nightmare. It was, it was clearly about to go bust. You know, the financial black hole was way too deep to address. Mm. But after it had gone bust, I got contacted again by the liquidator who seemed convinced that I was interested in buying the company and um, persuaded me to take another look at what was being offered, which was basically the assets of the business. The, the company had closed, the staff had gone their separate ways, and there was, wasn't a an, uh, a live business it's a good to buy. Really. It's just a matter of the, the brand, mm -hmm. the IP, and that mm -hmm. was it. There was nothing else to buy. Um, and uh, a colleague who had worked with me at, at Soundcraft and was had been uh, a freelance software person for a while um, was around at the time. And between us, we talked ourselves into buying the assets and uh, and and going into business using the Focusrite brand and, and design IP as the foundation of that business. And what was the vision behind Focusrite? Was it, was it, was it taking it to the next level then? Cause in, well, the vision the was early... to, to go back into the console business, but right. at another level compared to where Soundcraft were operating. Uh, and you know, you can imagine that at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, um, there was still uh, a lot of enthusiasm for big consoles. Unfortunately, by the time we actually built our own console, um, the market was drying up rapidly um, in, the, in the early 90s. We looked at continuing to build the Forte console that had been developed, but it was uh, a technological nightmare. It was mm. basically unbuildable and unsustainable. Uh, you know, it was very impossible to maintain. Almost, the phoenix uh, would go back into the ashes, would it, if you'd have carried on that way? Yeah. So we thought, well, what have we got? We've got the ISA one one zero, nice building block there, Mike Pre and EQ. Let's design a tracking console around that because people were buying. Uh, racks of eight of them to, to track with mm. and we thought a tracking console would be a, a great idea people were clearly favouring SSLs for mixing on right. um, but um, we thought a tracking console was a good idea so one of the studios that, that lost money with the original company was Metropolis and um, they supported the idea and uh, we built the prototype as their console and mm. uh, we sold in, in, in all 10 of those, um, mostly 72 input, 164 and 196, but the rest were all 72s. Um, sold four in, in the States to uh, notably Conway and Oceanway. The Oceanway mm. console was still in service. Um, and uh, four in Japan. Um, one in the UK, one somewhere else, I can't remember. Uh, so, yeah, a total of 10 before in 92, I decided that, you know, the, the console business was just not sustainable. Our product was too expensive. Uh, there was a 
the price <clears throat> war going on between Neve and SSL and the declining market for large consoles was really being um, fought out by them. So they were fighting, they, you know, at the peak they were both producing over 100 consoles a year and at this point I think they were fighting over 50 a year. Um, With a decreasing profit. Yeah, mm. so we got out and my, my challenge then was either to close the business or, uh, or reinvent it. So that was our first reinvention. We, we looked at our outboard offerings and thought, well, what else can we do? And the first thing was, well, we can present our circuit blocks in different, um, different formats. And, and, and the red range was the result of that, that um, decision. So uh, we brought out the red one, which is a four-channel mic pre. It's exactly the same mic pre that was in the ISA Romano. Red two, which was two channels of EQ, again exactly mm. the same EQ. Yeah. Um, red three, which was a compressor that was largely based on the compressor um, design in the uh, ISA one thirty. Um, then we thought, what do we do next? And monitoring, we thought, well, there's no good studio preamp for. You know, project studios or studios to be able to switch sources mm. so we brought a studio preamp the red four went to a third party a company called cord an amplifier mm. for, for a company for our um studio monitor amplifier which was a cord amplifier um but with professional inputs and outputs i.e xlrs and um balanced in and out um, and with the red five the classics from red front panel um, that was not entirely successful because it was really around the time that um, active monitors were yeah. being introduced mm. um, and it was, it was curious actually that on the one hand people were typically not prepared to pay a lot of money for amplifiers so we were competing against uh, uh, Yamaha amps costing yeah. a, f a fraction, yeah. you know, 500 quid, quid yeah. for a yeah. Yeah. Yamaha, big black or two grand yeah. for, for ours, yeah. um, or even more, I can't remember how much they were. Um, so people were either not prepared to pay for quality, or they were buying active monitors mm. because of the quality. Mm. Um, so after maybe two years or so, we discontinued the Red 5 and the Red 4 as well. Um, and a couple of other models. Uh, Red 6 was a mic pre and EQ single channel. Uh, Red 7 was a, uh, a mic pre with compressor, so it was a dynamics module mm. with a mic pre. And then the Red 8 was a two channel version of the Red 1. So and lots of these were all based around the heritage. A forty console, exactly. and, then, and then the Fiat Ford and stuff like yeah. that. So we weren't creating a lot of new circuit designs at that point. You were just giving people more ways of getting into your products and getting into that sound, yeah, and that quality. Sort of fast forwarding then, because obviously it's a very different company now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's everything from your more recent stuff like iPad interfaces uh, uh, and and. Uh, your, ch your channel strip like the uh, the Trackmaster strips have been uh, again ubiquitous every home studio I think in the world's got one uh, I've got one yeah. uh, 
I think. Uh, well, after after it, the Reds, we then had to think about expanding the 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 the, the business um, into a wider market. Mm. The market was expanding rapidly with home studios, but people didn't have the budgets for Reds. Mm. Mm. Uh, so first we brought out the Green Range, yeah, and then we brought out the Platinum Range. Yeah. Both times we were kind of halving the average price, so we went from. Two thousand pound boxes to one thousand pound boxes to five hundred pound mm. boxes, um, or sub those numbers. But you know, in, in terms I think of the Trackmaster was two hundred and fifty quid or something. It was, yeah. it was an amazing yeah. piece right. of value. Yeah, for what you were getting. Well, thank you for that compliment. Um, uh, yeah, I, I agree, it was. And and by the way, I was saying to somebody the other day that uh, uh, Spike Stent recorded Madonna using a Trackmaster. Yeah, because uh, he liked the sound of it. He chose. He could have used anything he liked, but he chose Which to use that. Probably brings me to a question, really. That the Olympic, Olympic yeah. yeah, Olympic, of course. Yeah, what would you say to to to, to people who are well, a lot of our listeners are kind of aspiring musicians? They haven't got mm-hmm. a lot of money. Yeah, do you think they get incredible value for money these days compared to absolutely yeah. to where you were in in mid eighties? Those 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 days of forte. And in a sense, it brings me to also a second part of that question is that there's been kind of scratching of the heads of you calling your new little interface the forte, and some people with nostalgic heritage are going, oh, it's like it's like calling it the Pope uh, because of your big desk. What what's the thinking? Do you think that there is comparisons there? You think- um, well, in since since the um, uh, you know the days of, of producing these ranges of analog. Uh, mic pre's and EQs and channel strips. Um, our business has has uh, very much changed direction. Whilst we still do a bit of that, um, we are now predominantly uh, all about audio interfaces. Mm. Um, now, there's two parts of an audio interface. Uh, there's the the mic pre's, and uh, there's the A to D and D to A conversion. Mm. So uh, the, our first um, uh, project uh, of that sort was the um, Digidesign Mbox, mm. which uh, we designed for Digidesign back in the early 2000s, uh, 2000, 2001. Um, phenomenally successful. Mm. Um, wow. And uh, uh, yeah, it was really good for them and really good for us because we were royalty. It was like having a hit record for a few years. Uh, the, you know, the money just kept flowing in. Um, and uh, we were precluded by our agreement with Digidesign from uh, going into the market with, with our own audio interfaces, or at least USB interfaces. Uh, when um, uh, Firewire came along, we thought, well, this doesn't technically conflict with our agreement with Digidesign, um, and we started developing the first Sapphire audio interface. Um, and coincidentally, around that time, our relationship took a turn with, with Digidesign after they purchased uh, M Audio mm-hmm. and decided to do all their development in house. So the Mbox 2 was developed um, by. Digital Design and M Audio under the Avid um, brand, or the Avid uh, umbrella, I should say, um, and uh, and and we announced the the original Sapphire, uh, the white face vertical module, mm. um, and um, 
then brought out subsequent uh, additional uh, models uh, in our first generation of mm -hmm. sapphires, which were um, a moderate success. Um, it wasn't really until our second generation uh, where we were able to put into practice all the lessons we'd learned with the first generation um, uh, that uh, we really um, went up several gears and uh, became um, the interface company that we are today. Um, and it became, a, um, there was a point in time, a sort of tipping point, about four years ago, three or four years ago, when I said to our marketing and development um, people, um, we've got to get a new focus. This is like a, a, a turning point. We are now the interface company. Everything else that we do, you know, that we've done before, that we still do, carry on, you know, selling mic pre's without converters, whatever, you know, we're still an analog company. Um, but we are, you know, the, the main thrust of the business is, is audio interfaces, getting in and out of the computer with the best possible results. Um, and taking that decision really focused everybody's uh, attention, and uh, both on the development side, where we spend our money on product development, where we spend our money on marketing. And uh, I think has led us to achieving um, a preeminent position in, in, in that category. Do you think they get something of the 40 desk of all those years back in what they get now? Is, is, is the evolution still there? Is, the, is, the, is, there, is there a heritage coming through? Um, technically, uh, there's no direct link. Uh, we don't use the same mic pre's um, that we had in the Forte de desk or in the Red Range because they're simply too expensive. Yeah, not if you want one for £200. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's simply too expensive. But what we do at every price point is to um, maximise the uh, performance and, and uh, quality, uh, not the audio performance and the build quality. Yeah. Um, so yeah. whether it's a £150 um little box or a thousand dollar big box uh, I, sorry i tend to get mixed up between pounds and dollars because we work in both That's um, but uh yeah so so actually 150 dollars is is the 2i2 for example yeah, yeah. um you know, brilliant little interface we sell thousands every month and uh it's just a massive success the other end of the spectrum we've got the the, the pro 40 and the um, Liquid 56, which are massively successful too, and, and various uh, stages in between. So we, we try to, without going ridiculous, um, meet different price points because you know people have budgets um, and levels of functionality. I think the term best in class, you're sort of aiming for best in class in all the ones yeah. that you're making. And to come back to your question uh, the, about the, the, the Forte interface, yeah. uh, it's a Halo product uh, and, and the console is a Halo product. Uh, so uh, for um, the price point, which is, is, is 600 or $595, yeah. um, I can't remember what it is in pounds. But, uh, uh, about probably, 400 quid yeah, yeah about 400 pounds um 
it's it's not got the most inputs and outputs. Mm. Is that? But it has got you know uh, the the best bang for the buck that we can deliver um, in terms of, of, of performance and software mm. associated software. Um, it's it's a, a great product and and one which uh, has uh, no. Uh, no compromises as far as uh, meeting meeting a price point. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the, the Swiss watch. It's, it's, it's the it's the Rolex of, uh, of audio interfaces in the focus right You don't fire your photographer, but actually I've held one for the first time today. It looks a lot better in the flesh than it does in the photos. It looks it's bigger. It feels chunkier. It just feel like a real piece of work in terms of uh, looking at the photos. It seemed much smaller. Uh, so I can't wait to get hold of that and do a review of it because it does look amazing. And I can imagine broadcasters using it for field recording and things like that because it would give them excellent results because it'll go to 192 and all sorts of stuff won't like that. Won't yeah. it's pretty, this isn't some kind of uh, little two and two out sort of USB interface for kids. It's, it's a real nice, nice piece of work. But coming on to the kind of the, the aspiring guys as we sort of finish this up today, uh, we talked about your journey today. We always ask this question of everybody we interview. What would you say to somebody who's just get? What's your best piece of advice you'd get to say to somebody who's just getting into recording? Uh, that would you think would would be the one thing that you'd like them to remember if they said, "I'm getting into recording, Phil." What do you What do you think I should do? Concentrate on the music. Um, you know, recording um, as an art. Uh, it, it, it has no purpose without the music. Uh, and it's all about the music for me. Um, and uh, my youngest son, who's uh, a musician, I actually kept him away from the technology um, for as long as I could. Um, in fact, really until he uh, actually graduated from music school because uh, you know I didn't want him distracted by mm. technology. Mm. Uh, I wanted him to concentrate on writing songs mm. and performing. And, and developing his craft. Now he records. Now he has. He, uh, 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 but you know, I didn't. Uh, you know, it's all about the music and, and, and the musicianship. So back in in my day, people either made you know were musicians or, or engineers or they were yeah. recording engineers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, these days, most of our customers are musicians who are recording. So I'd say to those people. Um, put the music first and do you think home recording actually is can actually be an antithesis of what it's meant to be sometimes it gets in the way well no it's an, it's an enabler because otherwise um, most people wouldn't have the opportunity to record at all but they can people are very gear focused these days aren't they and sometimes get so caught up with the gear they actually don't write any songs well that's the problem that's the problem that I'd, I'd really encourage people to uh to avoid um, but you know some people are more you know get into the recording and perhaps become better recording engineers than they are musicians but they they'll have their you know whether it's uh, for as enthusiasts or whether it's as professionals mm -hmm. uh, they will have their circle and if they can be the record recording engineer to their circle of musician friends um, if they're, the, you know, it's, it's like in the band, and uh, you know, uh, there's there's one guy who, who I mean, apart from their separate instruments, there's one guy who's going to be 
the better recording engineer than the others because you know statistically um there's always a geek in the band there's a geek in the band yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so so yeah i think that in in the traveling band my son's band um um adam gorman his his writing is there's two songwriters two principal songwriters i should say because the others do write but um but adam's more the recording engineer than than joe is but they they both record uh but probably because i steered uh joe away from getting involved with technology for as long as possible he, he's not the strongest uh recording engineer but he writes i suspect songs. i mean but actually, I, I try to get them working with with professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, uh, you know, it's it's fine for you know recording demos and stuff. Uh, when they try to re- record finished product, it takes them way too long. And I'd rather they were working with recording professionals, um, both engineer and producer, that um, they'll get much better productivity and better results at the end of the day. Sorry, I did say finally, but there's one question we didn't cover and we spoke about it earlier. I've asked a lot of American manufacturers this, but I'm going to, I asked you this earlier when we're going to quickly talk about it. A bit like music from the 60s, why do you think we've been so prolific for such a small island in terms of being, being the people to look to for great audio products? What do you think it was about the UK? Well, two places where that's been true. That's the UK and America. And it's all about the music. It's the music that's driven the the, the, the technology. It's created the uh, the demand. Um, and uh, so, going back to to the sixties, um, the uh, there were independent studios like Trident mm. and Sound Techniques and uh, and also corporate ones like Decca mm. and uh, notably uh, EMI studios that developed their own hardware because it didn't exist in you know to supply uh, an existing demand the demand you know came from the ground up recording studios um, emerged I mean obviously the, the earliest ones like Abbey Road mm. um, were belonged to recording companies and it was the factory for for a recording company um and that, you know emi uh, abbey road they used to wear literally brown uh warehouse coats I've you seen know, photos and, of and, that, and yeah. white coats you know just like a factory you get yeah. the white coats and the brown coats um and 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 wore ties and things but um in by the 60s you had started to get the emergence of the independent um producers and, and the independent studios to support those producers um, and if, if something didn't exist the studio would invent it themselves um, in the 70s you got the emergence of companies like Tascam uh, Tascam Otari mm. um, developing tape machines and we just happened to be in the right place at the right time at Soundcraft to, to produce inexpensive mixes so we were right at the vanguard of the home studio mm. even though it was relatively expensive compared to today um, and we at Soundgraph we, we actually had a tape machine division for a while uh, in the 80s I remember that um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, um, I think that 
as I say, it all comes back to the to the music, the pro prolific growth of of, uh, of the music industry here in the states that drove the emergence of companies that have, like uh, Neve, like Solid State Logic, like Soundcraft um, in America, like MCI, mm. uh, which um, sadly you know uh, was acquired by Sony and disappeared. Um, and uh, so, uh, and lots of, you know, countless others. It know. sounds like it proves the saying that necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. It's completely true. Absolutely, yeah. And it was basically, you needed it, somebody had to build it, and so you did. Well, if nobody else was doing it, you had to invent it yourself, yeah. So in the case of me back in 1972, uh, with a building PAs and needing a mixer. Two mono mixers into uh, stereo. We needed to find somebody who could build a mixer, yeah. But it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for all you've done for the for our industry. Oh, we well, continue to do. I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's great. And uh, yeah, I mean it's better than having a proper proper job. Yeah. Of course, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks for your time. Thank you.